0: But I think for our generation, the generations coming, we're really going into an environmental situation that is fast becoming irreversible. So from um, a time perspective, we need to get these issues on the agenda now.
1: Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We know that a shift is necessary from industrialised, input-intensive food production, leading to diets relying heavily on ultra-processed and energy-dense foods, to sustainable production and healthier consumption. The interconnectedness of the elements of the food system is a source of inertia. Technically, one should speak of resilience. But without the positive connotation attached to the term, a series of lock-ins exist that can only be unlocked together in a process that is more revolutionary than reformist. That's a quote from Olivia de former UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, in the foreword to Healthy and Sustainable Food Systems, a key book in the space that was edited by Australian professors Mark Lawrence and Sharon Friel, published in 2020. Joining me to talk food systems, wicked interconnections, and an exciting new initiative that may help up the ante on food systems thinking and reform that can tend to favour those with power within our food systems are Kate Sievert, Sheree Russell, and Sarah Dickey from the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University, where they are each currently completing their PhDs in really exciting areas of nutrition science and or public health nutrition. Welcome, Kate, Cherie and Sarah. Thanks for your time today. How are you? End of lockdown in sight? Yes,
2: thank you so much for having us, um, Anthea. We're really happy to be here and honoured to be uh, on your podcast. Um, yeah, it's challenging times for sure. Yeah,
0: feeling really lucky to live in Victoria right now, which is one of the first times I've said that in the last 18 months.
1: Sarah, how are you? I, I'm well, I'm well,
0: thank
3: you. Yes, uh, same as Cherie and Kate, yeah, feeling, feeling very lucky to be
1: out of lockdown. Yeah, that's great. You're each doing research and publishing with leaders in what is the very fast moving, healthy, and sustainable food systems arena. Sheree and Sarah, Professor Mark Lawrence, and Kate, Dr. Philip Baker, are respectively your primary supervisors for your PhD research. And Phil and I, as you know, had a great conversation for Nourishing Matters about how junk food is junking our health and the planet some time ago. And it was Phil who alerted me to your brainchild and team effort to create Healthy Food Systems Australia. That has me really intrigued. (laughs) So let's talk about Healthy Food Systems Australia, the what, why and where to. And hopefully we'll also have some time to talk about your personal research interests and how they relate to HFSA and to leverage points for further reform or, or revolution. Uh, just a little big conversation, so, so let's get into it. To lead us in, can, can you tell me about or, or paint a picture of what Healthy Food Systems Australia is and, and what your overall vision for, for it is?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think uh, to give you uh, some insight into where it came from, I suppose we go back to what we were trying to do at the time. Um, so a lot of us are doing research in food policy you know we're in a public health and food policy group and are increasingly looking to translate some of the findings from our research into practical policy outcomes so we have become very interested in becoming advocates for for public health and nutrition and wanting to get some of the messages that we're finding from our own research into uh, practical policy that can lead to tangible outcomes. And we were finding that some of the advocacy options around that exist in Australia and certainly in Victoria, of which there are many out there doing some fantastic work, did seem to be more focused on key areas like a particular disease outcome or a particular part of the supply chain or a particular part of food policy. And given that a big focus of our research group has been on systems thinking, so how does one particular policy affect multiple areas of the system? And unfortunately, that is quite complex and usually means you kind of have to have a real overview of the system and an understanding of how the system interconnects with each other. We found that there was a real paucity of advocacy options, and which kind of led to this What felt like at the time a kind of crazy idea, but has exceeded all my expectations in more ways than one, led us to kind of come together as three students and think about, okay, well, how could we be that voice that's maybe missing in advocacy right now? That actually does look at, well, if we're advocating for this one particular policy that maybe sure addresses, um, for example, maybe a reduction in a particular ingredient like sugar, you know, are we inadvertently still advocating for what will ultimately be a packaged food or and then how what are the flows on from Uh, an environmental perspective, an animal welfare perspective, social justice, um, equity. It's really come from a place of trying to be very holistic and trying to make sure that what we're advocating for will lead to the most utilitarian outcomes, really.
1: Hmm. So cutting across silos and and sort of Old, almost old-fashioned areas of specialisation just focused on a disease or a particular ingredient or specific health, you know, isolated health outcome. Is that right?
2: Yes, yes,
1: that's right. Mm-hmm. Sarah or Cherie, would you like to add to that?
0: Yeah, I think a big part of this as well is we in our research group have a lot of conversations around food policy, obviously, because that's our research area. And I think that something gets that gets lost is that research isn't necessarily translated into words and policies that people can easily understand. It's not very accessible. So one of the things we wanted to do as we're nearing the end of our PhDs is make sure that the work that we're doing can be applied in the policy sphere. It doesn't just exist sort of in what's sometimes called the ivory tower of research where we circulate our papers on Twitter and we all read each other's stuff and we think this is this is great, we need to be doing this, but it's not really translating into the real world. So that was another big part of why we wanted to start advocating in our own right for these really systematic changes. Um, as Kate was saying, you can't change A without Inadvertently changing B, C, D, and E. And what we really want to know is what are those changes? Are they good? Are they bad? And how can we
1: minimise the amount of harm that comes from changing A? That's a great nutshell. So, so who are the key audiences, if you like, for for a, how do we refer to it? HFSAs activities. That... HFSA.
0: That's it. Who <laughs> really rolls off the tongue? It really
1: does, doesn't it? Um, so, who are the key audiences uh, for for HFSAs activities that you? most like to reach?
3: Um, I think number one, it would be policymakers. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Definitely getting them familiar with some of the concepts such as ultra-processed foods, which, you know, is a familiar concept amongst researchers but not yet with policymakers and also, I guess, other advocates and kind of hoping to convey that, you know, systems lens thinking when we communicate with other advocates. So hopefully kind of
1: swaying conversation towards systems thinking. And, of course, as researchers, you're at the cutting edge of what thought and research is happening. And often, you know, the public, the mainstream, the everyday politician is 10, 15 years behind you, aren't they? Yes. (laughs) So what sorts of nuts and bolts activities, information or campaigns are in the planning pot? I, I think, you know, we spoke briefly the other day and you mentioned possibly various educational materials for uni students and perhaps even flashcards for politicians. Tell me a little bit more about the sort of nuts and bolts of how you're going to go about this huge challenge, but really valuable one.
2: Yes, it's been kind of an education along the way. What we've actually started with is contributing to open submissions that might be invited by regulatory boards, such as Fazans, which is the food standards, Australia New Zealand. Yes, that's (laughs) a trip over that every time invited by the UN in their food system summit. But there is a limit to how effective those submissions can be. You know, they're very tenuous documents to go through and at the end of the day a lot of those submission processes are kind of invited when they're quite late in the inquiry stage. So we have been thinking about what else we could do and how we could be more effective and reach a wider audience. And as Sarah mentioned, policymakers are one audience that we're trying to reach. But in order to reach policymakers, you also need to engage the general public because they're the people voting for those policymakers. So we have also looked into creating some easy-to-digest Educational videos, uh, particularly around the ultra processed foods concept, because I know that that is a tricky one for lots of people to understand, given that the focus previously has been uh, so much around salt or sugar or fat. Um, So we have been thinking about that. We've also thought about perhaps aligning ourselves with other advocacy bodies and working in collaboration. I mean, something that has become very obvious to us is that the weight comes with lots and lots of voices. And there are lots of advocacy groups that are saying similar things to us, perhaps in different areas. And so aligning ourselves and becoming a more united public health face has been a really important goal for us to talk about. I mean, it's one thing for us to create an advocacy group and do the work that we're doing with the messages that are important to us. And we do think that there are some messages that we have as a group that probably are a bit different to a lot of other advocacy groups. And so it is important for us to maintain a voice individually as a group but that it is also important to be collaborative and to work with other public health groups so that we can be effective and, you know, and fight against other quite heavily weighted voices like the food industry, which have a lot of power, particularly with policymakers.
1: Mm. You're in that very specialised space, which is nutrition science and nutrition public health. And there's lots of groups within that locus. But because you're doing a systems, you know, such a holistic sort of approach, there are incredible opportunities for you to link with other really progressive advocacy groups across the whole food system, whether it be farming groups like Farmers for Climate Action, or whether other elements of the sustainable food movement, or the food sovereignty or um, social justice movement, which um, that's a a different systems layer too, isn't it? Yeah. Um, You've spoken about the system's importance and how there are gaps. Why do you think, HFSA is especially timely and needed now. What's particularly inspired you as a group? I think that in the time period that we live in now, one of the most pressing issues
0: for not just our generation, but generations to come is the issue of sustainability, environmental degradation. And that's something that gets left out a lot of in these conversations, especially in the public health nutrition space. There's such a focus on not just health, which is already a reduction of what these broader issues are, but from health that gets put down to just maybe obesity maybe just sugar. And one of the issues that we've had in the past is really this reductionist lens that people are looking at into these policy issues doesn't really address the big, broader aspects that are going to make a difference long-term. So short-term, reducing sugar in people's diets Obviously, that's the great thing, but it doesn't really get to the issue of, okay, that's one part of the food system, but the food system overall is still degrading our, our climate. We've got, you know, huge issues with land use, water use, greenhouse gas emissions. It's a huge huge systems input-output that we're really not capturing. So I think for us um, as young people in this space, because it is dominated by a lot of people who have many more years of experience than us and, um, you know, obviously we're in reverence of them, but I think for our generation the generations coming, we're really going into an environmental situation that is fast becoming irreversible. So from a time perspective, we need to get these issues on the agenda now. As you're saying, often policymakers are sort of about 10 to 15 years behind the science. So if we're at a point now where we're thinking maybe some of these changes aren't going to be reversible in a couple of years, we need to be lobbying and advocating now. We need to be making noise now, and we need to be changing the system
1: now. Yeah, that's right. And tinkering with dietary guidelines and attachments and so forth kind of doesn't quite get you there, does it?
0: No. And those are important things we need to be doing, but they can't be the focus. No,
1: no. Okay. So it needs to be part of a suite of other issues. Yeah. They won't drive big P change. Sarah, you wanted to say something.
3: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, um, I think one of the words we've used early on is this idea of transformation. So you said, why this group now? Um, I think the issues are just so large that these incremental changes that are being put forward aren't enough. And we need a vision that is transformative. Um, And we just didn't see that out there, that that vision. And I don't know if how how well we can achieve that now, but we need to put our voice out there and say, transformation is needed for these big challenges, not just incremental change. Someone needed to be saying it. We're kind of playing that role.
1: Yeah, so it's big paradigm change stuff, really, isn't it? And I read a great book recently by uh, by Dr. Alana Mann, "Food in a Changing Climate," which is which goes to big food and and the big picture of. Colonial agricultural societies and their linkages with the food system, which I'm sure you you, you would have a lot in common with her.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think sorry to interrupt you, Anthea. Yeah. Uh, speaking of big food, I think one of the other things that makes this very timely is, you know, we I think we've been aware for a long time of the role of big food in influencing policy and kind of dominating the food system and. We are aware, you know, that it is a corporatized food regime, you know, corporations are feeding us, but I think we are only really just uncovering exactly how much influence they have and exactly how much of a challenge it is to reverse some of these paradigms. And one of our biggest points of advocacy is trying to challenge the power of the food industry in our food system and take back some of the power into consumers into farmers hands into people who um where profit isn't the ultimate priority and i understand that you know we live in a capitalist world and and profit will be a a priority going forward for many, but to the extent that it contravenes with uh, public health interests and environmental interests and social and animal welfare equity, I think it is becoming very clear that we cannot continue to operate in the same way and live the lifestyle that we've become accustomed, that that true transformational change is needed. And in order to do so, we will need to challenge some of the dominance of the food industry.
1: Even just helping picture just how consolidated our actual food industry across the food chain is, that's a topic I'm really fascinated by because, you know, we need diverse food systems on many levels, don't we? And um, Mm. people and farmers and communities connected to place so they can care for place, i.e. the environment and people. And um, when things are huge and consolidated, people are distanced from the impacts or the consequences of what they do, aren't they? Mm. Thanks so much for all of your contributions there. I, I was I was going to ask about um, the idea of uh, gaps existing within the discourse and professional, you know, Very much so. Really innovative research and, and advocacy from the perspective or the lens of your age group and your demographic <laughs> and the sort of mood and style of the conversation. Because of course, as you've said, Kate, people you you revere, but to to get to those amazingly high highly qualified positions. By definition, you're a boomer or a young boomer. So so, so there's a, a real opportunity and a real need for young professionals to speak for their generation, isn't there? Yeah. But personally, have you sometimes felt a bit frustrated with the style or the focus yes. of popular food conversations and information that's out there in everyday life and media? And I'm thinking perhaps of the plethora of, you know, fad diets and products and trends and, and also about from where and how you live, perhaps as vegetarians or young women who are part of a growing demographic who are, t- who, are who are vegetarian. Has, has that been a key part of what's kind of fired you up?
2: Personally, I'm not sure that my vegetarianism has been much of a drive. I mean, that's a very personal choice for me and I I personally don't think that you know, everybody needs to be vegetarian or vegan or needs to adopt the diet that I have. I certainly have felt frustration at times, but I can also recognize that a lot of the discourse in nutrition is very confusing, um, partly because of the nature of how evidence is made around nutrition. It is changing a lot. It is very hard to measure I mean, health in the first place is very difficult just due to the nature of all the confounding variables that can play into it.
1: All the social determinants.
2: Yes, exactly. And so I can understand why um, people get interested in particular diets or why things have panned out. The way they have, and particularly, I mean, going back to the food industry, I mean, they play a huge role in influencing science and influencing what gets into the media. And we can look at Coca Cola's role on trying to divert focus onto physical activity instead of um, diet when thinking about overweight and obesity. But it's is—it's a difficult space to be in. I know personally, when I have these conversations with friends, it's one of those things where everybody has an opinion because everybody eats. Um, Sometimes it is hard to cut through the old paradigms or the old ways of thinking about diet in terms of individual macronutrients and uh, things like that. So that can be, it's certainly a challenge, but that's why it's quite exciting as a young person to be involved involved with
1: it. Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: Cherie? Um, I couldn't agree more, especially around sometimes the way that diets are framed. So often they're framed around losing weight or minimising the risk of overweight and obesity. And there's a really interesting body of literature that challenges this paradigm that we are so focused on weight At the expense of all else, Um, and often, especially as young women, that weight comes with a level of, this is sorry, this is a little bit um, outside of nutrition, but it comes with a level of worth attached to it as well. And I think that's something that can be used as a marketing tool by industry, but also it's just so ingrained in our society that you need to be a certain weight And we can use diets to achieve that. And I think that having that focus and that focus permeates through policy, it permeates through research, it's really the buzzword is obesity, although that is lessening over time, but it's a big part of the way that these questions are framed and the way that policies are framed. It really takes away from every other part of the dietary system. It takes away from, you know, the types of food we're eating, the culture of food, the enjoyment of food, eating food that's local, eating food that meets your, you know, not just your nutrient needs, but also, I guess, in a way, it feeds your soul. And I think that the way food is talked about is so clinical. um, And that's something that we try and push against because food is to be enjoyed, not just to fuel.
3: Sarah? Yeah, I was just going to add to what Cherie said, Um, when we write about this stuff, we, we, kind of remove the word obesity. I see obesity as uh, one of the many risk factors involved uh, in poor diets. It's not the outcome where we want to address poor diets. We try to avoid that word. But um, as far as being frustrated with the discourse um, in the media and yeah, constantly, just constantly. (laughs) My, 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 My discipline is nutrition. So I wish I could just teach you know, everyone about the commercial and social determinants of health. This is where all diet issues lie, in my opinion. So I, I you know, I I really, you know, the individual factors, uh, or, you know, you, you have someone come up to you at a party and say, oh, what do you think of this diet or this diet or this diet? I'm like, mm. you know, I don't care. You want to talk about the commercial determinants of health? <laughs> Much more interesting conversation to me.
1: Yeah, do you want to talk about what's being offered to you and who's offering it and why? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so Kate, you mentioned earlier that you've been surprised by how, uh, you know, the feedback, the response, what's happening. I was going to ask you all, who do you hope will get involved in HFSA and either to help spread the message or share the work? Would you like to talk about ha- how it's going and who's involved and what the feedback is or what's the momentum like? So
2: we initially started as just the three of us and for at least the first four, four to six months. It really was just the three of us doing submissions on the side of our PhDs and
1: in all that spare time,
2: getting really excited. Yeah, I mean, but to be honest, sometimes it was so enjoyable that the, you know, don't tell my supervisor, but the PhD took a a hit. (laughs) I might edit that out later. Um, (laughs) And um, so it just started the three of us. And then we invited uh, the rest of our research group. So that is the public health and food policy group at IPAN at Deakin, so now sixteen members in our group, and that feels really exciting. It makes us feel a bit more legitimate, and we have a lot of really knowledgeable people in that group. And so, I need to correct myself. It's called the Healthy and Sustainable Food Policy Research Group, not that our old name was Public Health and Food Policy. Uh, we have sixteen members, and at the moment, we're focused on. Uh, the majority of us are. Academics, but this is not where we'd like to stay. I mean, certainly we would like voices across the system. And so, people, you know, uh, having consumers, having people involved uh, from a farming background, having people with a more environmental sustainability background, because all of us are public health nutrition mainly. So, getting that wider array of voices so that we can address areas that perhaps we ourselves are lacking in terms of full systems view.
1: Mm, That's fascinating. Uh, I had a question here, which was going to sort of about where in the system and who, what nodes within the system you might be focusing on. You've answered that very clearly. You're looking at interactions across the system and hence the invitation to other people. But just for listeners, I might just sort of read out you know, a bit of a description of of, of how food systems are often described. Um, And then perhaps you might just suggest some areas where you might like some more partners or friends to to join you, (laughs) Uh, because clearly you know what a food system is. So food systems are complex with lots of stakeholders, messy interests and interactions, and their structural components span across food supply, food environments and consumer behaviour, all the way through to nutrition and health outcomes. And there are diverse and many drivers from the biophysical and environmental to technology, infrastructure and innovation, political and economic, sociocultural and demographic factors. And when we think systems, we might also often think micro, macro and meta levels in terms of sites or leverage points for influence and change. That's a bit of a mouthful and it's no news to you, I know. Can you share some reflections on where you think Holistic thinking across the system is perhaps most lacking at the moment. So, for example, Deakin, in another part of your university, I think, have recently launched uh, Refresh, a big new research program that's all about demonstrating how healthy food retail can become the new norm for food business. And I'm sure there'll be all sorts of interesting issues and uh, divergences of opinion in that, but food retail and packaging and labelling and, and you know, all that sort of stuff that puts all the responsibility on the consumer in a neoliberal framework rather than the big picture reform or the big picture P politics. Any ideas or suggestions on where else in the big picture food system you'd like some more partners or big voices to join forces with? I tend to work at the production and a little bit more in Nourishing matter. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. I
0: think the obvious answer here is one of the expert voices we're really missing is from our First Nations peoples. That's an area, and, I mean, that ties across a lot of the food system and also the way our food system is industrialised and, as you mentioned in um, opening remarks, colonialized as well. So that's a big area where we would love more expertise because obviously... As three people who are white, um, we can only say so much in this area. And more broadly, from consumers. So it's all very well and good to have idealistic views of things that need to change in our food system, but it's really important that we stay grounded in a food system that is, although it is not currently, moving towards something more equitable. So making sure that everyone in Australia, which is our focus, although globally is also very important, has access to affordable, safe, culturally acceptable food. And that's something we don't have at the moment, but we are reaching out. So we recently have had a few members join us who um, do come from more of that consumer perspective. Also consumer issues that we haven't previously been incorporating into our work, which is things such as gender diversity and looking at how the food system is impacted by and also impacts people of different genders, also really important and something that um, we're growing into at the moment.
1: And what about diversity in terms of our incredible multicultural society um, with very different body images often and with very different food traditions and, as you say, foods about enjoyment and pleasure and, you know, visceral. It would be fascinating to have further insight from diverse cultural food traditions and food, health, and nutrition understandings. I used to live in Korea, where food wasn't considered food; everything was sort of considered on a spectrum of well-being. <laughs> uh, you know, kimchi is a medicine; it's a food. Kind of where I was thinking. What about what about that? Have you got some other cultural voices and backgrounds contributing? Feel that there's a need for or for for more multicultural voices and cultural traditions.
3: Yes, we definitely want to um, involve other cultures in what we're doing. In honesty, we haven't given that much thought yet to other cultures and how we get them involved. Yeah, of course, definitely. Um, We're such a big multicultural society. Yeah, it's something we're going to have to think of.
1: In terms of environmental sustainability and the importance of local, regional, place-based, more sustainable diets and lifestyles, Australia is a very specific place. We have a very specific climate. It's also a huge country with incredible uh, different growing and production conditions. Um, And Cherie referred to First Nations peoples and food traditions and and contemporary practices is something uh, into the pot and collaboration, but but it's it's interesting, isn't it? We so often hear about the Mediterranean diet, but the Mediterranean diet, yes, it's got great things, but it's specific to the Mediterranean. <laughs> it's not you know it's not necessarily what we should be replicating here. Although there are uh, climatic and uh, geological conditions that make some that offer some similarities. I know Professor Robin Alders spoke about that, but she said, wouldn't it be great if we could think of not the Mediterranean diet, but the Australian diet specific to place and, you know, the biophysical and environmental characteristics of where we live. Okay, so that's my little uh, rave. Let's now talk about hot topics or key themes or challenges, discursive and other, if you like, in terms of the way healthy food issues are framed by industry or perhaps understood by everyday people that are perhaps at the top of your list for HFSA to try to tackle. Can I ask each of you to perhaps uh, to think about and to nominate uh, perhaps one or two hot topics or challenges that you see as as real priorities for HFSA to focus on? Cherie? I think something that's in the forefront for us um, is how
0: we classify what is a healthy diet and what are healthy foods. So at the moment in Australia, this is mostly based on the nutrient content of a food, um, and we argue that the level of processing should also be included in this. So there's a lovely framework called the NOVA framework um, that's used a lot in research, but it hasn't really permeated to policy or even really um, consumer understanding yet. And that classifies four different levels of processing. The one that we want people to eat are foods that are minimally processed. So things you can think of as whole foods, things that really aren't super packaged um, and haven't really gone under much processing. And what we want people to avoid is ultra-processed foods, which are obviously ultra-processed. They contain lots of fillers, artificial ingredients, but also a lot of those nutrients to limit that we do discuss in nutrition science generally. But these foods are also highly marketed. They're often really profitable for the food corporations that make them, Um, and they have started to permeate through not just in high-income countries, but they're also starting to leak through into middle and lower-income countries, displacing those cultural diets. So the reason that we want to focus on ultra-processed foods rather than nutrient profiling as a means to classify foods is because it cuts across more than just the food itself. Ultra-processed foods are shocking for the environment. There's a great body of literature that's building every day on this and how these are really the foods, if we're not looking at meat, which is another issue, that are really causing a lot of our environmental degradation. So they're also foods that um, personify this transnational corporation power. So they're a really good vector for us to look at multiple parts of the food system, not all because the food system is so complex, but several different parts while focusing on sort of one category of food so it's a really good way to cut across the food system and try and tackle lots of those different points
1: in one policy when you say ultra processed the processing that you're referring to isn't about cooking or preserving or salting or quite simple healthy traditional long-standing practices no we're talking about pretty radical industrial extrusion, extractive, hydrogenating, et cetera, et cetera, aren't we? So so where foods lose a whole lot of their properties and characteristics, is that right?
0: Absolutely. So processing has been really important for human beings for millennia. Um, even just from fire, using fire to cook things um, has really enhanced our ability to take in calories and nutrients. And energy. However, we're at a point in history where more food that people are consuming is industrially processed. So we're taking things out and we're putting things in that you wouldn't find in your kitchen at home. And that's really the issue here. There's nothing wrong with necessarily a can of unsalted legumes. We would never want someone not to eat that because they think it's processed. It's much more those you read the back of the packet and it's got tons of ingredients that you can't understand those kinds of really ultra processed, industrially processed foods that we really are wanting to target here.
1: And some of those ingredients are, almost like industrial chemicals, aren't they? They're not really foods, are they? No,
0: not foods. They are considered safe to use. Um, It's an important clarification to make, but that does not make them a food. They're a food-like substance.
1: And then there's further research I understand going on. It's not just about the individual components of those ultra-processed foods, but it's the kind of scary matrix of how they may interact. Is that right? in terms of how we metabolise them and so on. Sarah?
3: Yeah, I was just going to comment on on NOVA as a classification scheme because there is a lot of confusion, even amongst researchers, which I find a lot of like it gets a lot of uh, criticism on Twitter, for instance. NOVA is not about uh, demonising processed foods. NOVA um, came about to acknowledge that processed foods are healthy. <laughs> so but just to distinguish, yeah, the ultra processed foods from the canned foods, things that we preserve or add salt, a little sugar, things we've been
1: doing. The past the pastas. Yeah. The- yeah.
3: Yeah. So it's not and it's because we we never really had a good definition of what a processed food was. It was just used, you know, dilly dally, everyone used the word processed. What does that mean? Everything's processed. Yeah. Oh, it's in a package. <laughs> yeah. A lot of a lot of healthy foods are processed. So it's this ultra-processed concept, not processed um, for the distinction. So there's this idea of, um, food synergy. So once you kind of deconstruct the matrix of a food, you know, all the components within that food don't necessarily interact in the same way. So at at apple, you know, an example is an apple when you turn into fruit juice, like metabolically, you could juice an apple, an apple and a fruit, fruit and apple juice have very different ways of metabolizing in the body. So that's a simple example messing with that that food structure and the thing is we don't we don't know we don't know exactly we don't know enough yet about how these foods are metabolized but we do know they have a different it's different without within our bodies so it's yeah all these interactions is interactions within the food but also interactions between different foods in our body
2: I was just going to say we also need to think about context so in Something our group has uh, been very focused on is not just talking about ingredients, not just talking about foods in isolation, but uh, what's known as dietary patterns. So how are these foods being consumed, in what setting, in what combination with other foods? And what Sarah just mentioned about food synergies, yeah, we can see that these ultra-processed foods are having... A different response by the a different kind of metabolic response by the body. I mean, this is slightly out of my area, so I certainly couldn't give you any specifics on the chemistry of it all. But a lot of these foods are being consumed uh, in fast food restaurants, as you know, snacks are kind of occupying a larger role in the diet than um, a a prepared meal that we might have cooked in the kitchen, which I think speaks to. A wider problem of the generalized conveniencing of our lifestyles, and that we are in need of of ready-made foods that we don't necessarily need to prepare. And that's another conversation altogether, I suppose. But a study came out by Priscilla Machado, who is a a, a research fellow in our team, that looked at the proportion of these ultra-processed foods in the Australian diet and it was, you know, upwards of, you know, between 40, uh, 40 and 60% of the diet is being made. 42%, for I wildly exaggerate, <laughs> 42% of the diet is now being comprised of these foods. So it's a, it's a huge amount and it's a huge transition from how we used to eat.
0: A big part of it is that um, they come from really low cost ingredients, which means they can be cheap as well. So it's not, these foods are not necessarily, although some of them are, um, they're called functional foods. So sometimes you'll see that they'll have, you know, health claims on the front that will say high in fiber. Um, But often that fiber itself is ultra processed. So it's not necessarily coming from the same kind of fiber that you might organically find in a piece of fruit. It's um, come from, it's synthetic, it's come from a lab and it's injected into that food. So you're right, they are low nutrient Low cost.
3: I'll just make a distinction as well. Um, ultra processed foods aren't necessarily unrecognizable. So we also um, would classify ultra processed foods that have things like flavors, flavor enhancers, or cosmetic additives, so cosmetic flavors and colors. So these are increasing the the palatability of the foods, and they're not needed. So you know, a, a lot of foods have flavors, cosmetic flavors, just to enhance, you know, to make them more hyper palatable, and they don't need to have those. <laughs>
1: from the big food perspective that a lot of ultra processed foods um they're actually built around pretty low cost ingredients um and often the really high nutrition profile of those ingredients has been stripped out hasn't it
3: it also it comes back so you can you can deconstruct a food and take out the nutrients and put the nutrients back in but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same food you've you've disrupted the matrix it's not the same food
1: yes which yeah i was going to ask a question for somebody <laughs> to to actually just describe and, and you've refer you've each referred to it in different ways, but for say a lay person, um, perhaps to, to to describe or tell me about the idea of what food matrices are, because it seems to be relatively new. And it really goes to the heart of whole foods and food processing, and perhaps even how we could be determining a food's healthfulness.
3: I would say it's quite an, an, a bit of an abstract concept. It's more of a concept at the moment, because we don't we know we do disrupt the matrix. Um, there's only a couple of researchers who are really focusing on this, and it is quite. It's it's we're public health nutritionists, so we know what food scientists. Um, it is interesting if you go and read it. I I'm not. I wouldn't be able to replicate what they say, but pretty much you're you're disrupting those bonds in the way that that original intact food interacts. But we don't necessarily understand how that's happening. But we do know when you disrupt that matrix you get different metabolic effects.
1: And and different foods have food matrices, like different foods take different forms. And I'll just quote from a little bit of uh, Google that I did. Um, The more we process our food before eating it, the more we mess up the matrix. Chewing, cooking and other types of food processing all change the composition of our foods, altering how our bodies digest, absorb and respond to them. Work in progress, exciting area of research, perhaps outside of your immediate fields. Thank you. Thank you for that. Sarah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your research. I understand that you're, you know, you've been doing a lot of work around Australia's voluntary health star rating system and, and uh, how nutrition profiling yes. appears within it and uh, design and other limitations that may uh, travel with that and possible misalignment of messaging and content to help health and nutrition outcomes. It's a huge topic. Obviously, you can't summarise your PhD in two minutes. But can you tell me more about perhaps, you know, just pithily, how we should perhaps go about determining or, or thinking about describing a food's healthfulness. Well, I think this
3: relates back to what we were just saying. So, the issue with the health star rating system. I think most consumers I talk to kind of think it's a bit misleading, isn't it? Why why are these breakfast cereals getting such high ratings? They're not healthy foods. It does get it right a lot of the time, but it gets as many many examples of it getting it wrong. And I think it does come back to the issue of it only accounting for isolated components of foods and just a handful of these. So it looks at energy, you know, saturated fat, sugar, sodium, fibre, protein. You can't really, you can't just really add up those things and then decide whether a food's healthy or not.
1: Just looking at a few macronutrients. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Um, It comes back to that idea of the food matrix and you know, you can disrupt it and add and take away nutrients, but it doesn't necessarily make a healthy food. And I guess the health star rating system can manipulate that. It's actually a a good thing for industries, the manufacturers of ultra processed foods, so they can manipulate that kind of algorithm. So yeah, ideally, I, I, I think... As a basis, a healthy food should be determined by its level of processing. You know, unless we come up with a, a better system, Nova is one of the strongest systems right now for for kind of determining the level of processing. So, I, yeah, I'd like to see it from that basis.
1: And what do you call diet based indices rather than specific macronutrient or nutrient profile?
3: Yeah, yeah. So my my research actually focuses on how do you determine a healthful food. For policy purposes, and for policy purposes, unfortunately, you kind of really. When I say policy purposes, I mean regulatory policies. So, you know, putting restrictions on on advertising, for instance, or putting a tax or a subsidy on foods, uh, regulating health claims and front of back labeling. So we kind of. These policy actions need to look at the individual foods because you've got to say that individual food is healthy or not. We can advertise it. We can't advertise it, which is annoying because in nutrition we do think more holistically we want to look at dietary patterns. That's what matters to health overall. But for these really specific regulatory policies, we need to come up with some kind of definition of what we want to regulate. So unfortunately, yeah, dietary pattern indices don't really translate to an individual food it's like reducing it's reducing the concept down to an individual food is is impossible and it's kind of through my research I've kind of I've said that but this idea of level of processing really does translate well to that individual food level and there could be I'm still researching now and it, it could be looking at processing first and then looking at nutrients so looking at how much added sugar or added salt for instance but really kind of focusing on how deconstructed that food has been yeah if, it, if it's still a whole food or not
1: yeah other hot topics one or two
2: Kate uh so I think a hot topic for us that I mentioned earlier is uh kind of related to my own PhD work as well which is wrangling the power in the food system which is a formidable challenge, and certainly uh, contributes to the wicked problem of our, the woes of our food system generally. Which is that we really have, over the past few years, lost a lot of the power in the food system to the food industry, and once that's handed over, it's quite difficult to get back. I mean, these are companies that are what we refer to as vertically integrated and horizontally integrated which are just fancy words for many that they are uh, the concentration in the market that they occupy is extremely high and it's at all levels of the supply chain and the thing is when we talk about some of these food companies have more money than governments and they hold extreme influence over policymakers and play a really active role in what policies are made and certainly which policies are not made. Um, So some of the biggest companies that we see in the food system, particularly for ultra processed foods, are companies like Nestle, Coca-Cola, Unilever, uh, Danone, And then in the meat industry space, we've got companies like JBS and Tyson Foods. So these are transnational companies that then have their own headquarters in multiple countries. So they can, something that food companies have become very good at is replicating the culture of foods in whatever country they're in. And we can see this with McDonald's. So yeah, also fast food restaurants like McDonald's and KFC, you know, they do a very good job of, taking some of the food culture from the countries that they're in and and bringing that into their menu so it's a they're foods that you're familiar with you can go to anywhere in the world go to these restaurants and eat the same food that you're used to but perhaps try it with a little local flavor yeah so they're very they're very intelligent and strategic and it's something that I think public health and uh, advocacy bodies like us and HFSA probably need to get better at is applying some of those same strategies, obviously not the manipulation tactics, but engaging ourselves with governments and and giving us the same weight that the food industry does. Um, So the UN is hosting a food systems summit this year. It's actually just started this week and there are a lot of food industry actors there who are getting involved in some of the outcomes of the summit and running some of the events. And it just goes to show you exactly how much influence that they do have and that they are really positioning themselves to be part of the solution to some of the problems of the food systems while simultaneously continuing their quite destructive practices. So you know this is the hot topic and is certainly a big part of my phd as well is is looking at mm. exactly what this power involves how much they have what do we know about their power and about their capacity to externalize a lot of the costs i mean sarah mentioned earlier that a lot of these ultra processed foods are really cheap and how are they this cheap is because they're externalizing a lot of the costs involved with making them and they get that that process then re- really reinforces their continued consumption because they're, they're cheap to purchase.
1: And they've locked up the supply chain and the production chains. Yes. And often that shuts out small, more sustainable family and other producers and you get big agribusiness Absolutely. owned by people offshore, you know, uh, who aren't connected to place and caring for place as well. Exactly. Yes, and of course, in times of COVID, uh, there are supply chain issues with these very consolidated organisations that we've seen, whether with um, JBS and Hackware scares, or you know, abattoirs open as key key spreading places, and and a whole whole lot more. We could talk about that for hours as well. Thank you for that. Sh- and Sheree, what about your research, and what about sugar, uh, perhaps in relation to added sugar and the possible addition or substitution of sugar with non what, what's called non nutritive sweeteners (NNS)? Are there particular health issues associated with NNS that you think uh, need broader exposure or public understanding? Absolutely. So my research is embedded within a larger framework,
0: which is kind of what HFSA is also about, which is we have very reductionist policies looking at specific things and they have consequences, some of them good, some of them bad. My research is looking at the consequences of focusing so heavily on added sugars when we're policy making to improve diets and health. And one of the consequences of that is that we are using more artificial sweeteners, also called non-nutritive sweeteners because some of them are not artificial in our food supply. And what does that mean for the human populace? We know that there are some pretty big health impacts of overconsuming added sugars. The research on non-nutritive sweeteners is much more murky, and that's for a number of reasons. One of them is that often this research groups what are about 15 different sweeteners altogether that have different metabolic outcomes, different amounts of energy content. So that's quite problematic to start with. The second is that it is very industry influenced. So I actually did a review on this topic about a year ago and found that of the articles that are looking at specific health outcomes, I was looking specifically at energy intake, but this goes across all of the different health outcomes half of them are industry funded and you can almost guess who's funding them as to whether they say this has a health outcome or it doesn't those who are um, big sugar producers will produce studies that say that artificial sweeteners are really bad and those who are perhaps have their um, finger in the pot of artificial sweeteners will produce studies saying oh there's no outcomes They, you know, reduce weight, they reduce energy intake. There's there's nothing wrong with them, et cetera. One thing I do want to clarify is that the body of research does not say that they're carcinogenic. I know that in the community, that's one big fear with artificial sweeteners is that they are going to cause cancer. There isn't any research in humans that this is the case, but that doesn't mean that they don't have other impacts such as gut microbiome impacts where they change your gut microflora. Um, They've also been linked to type 2 diabetes. Um, And from a broader outside of health perspective, some of them are not removed from wastewater in particular countries, which means you often pay them out, they go into the wastewater system, they get filtered through and back into drinking water, which is not a choice you then get to make as to whether or not you're consuming them. So there's a vast array of issues around artificial sweeteners, I think, that goes beyond just the health impacts.
1: Isn't that capitalism at its best, commodifying a problem? It's working correctly. I
0: think this is something that's not coming across, is that the system's working perfectly. The system's not broken. The system is designed for this kind of innovation. I think what we're trying to do at HFSA is transform the system and say, actually, this system's maybe not the best. It's working well for these particular people, but not for the public.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, sugar, it's a whole food,
0: isn't it? It depends how you look at it. It can be, but most people don't eat spoonfuls of
1: sugar. I'm glad to hear that.
3: I would also, I would also say that, like, using them, um, the use of them is a marketing tool by industry as well. Um, they're, only, they're, they're only in ultra-processed foods. They're only used by, you know, the big ultra-processed food manufacturers. They used to market their products and they're usually, you know, used as like extra lines of products. You have the sugar version and the non-sugar version, you know, that's just extra things to sell. We eat a lot of home-baked cakes in our group. I'll just, I'll just tell you that.
1: With real sugar, with real sugar. You ladies are doing amazing uh, nutrition science and public health research and are really working at the, I don't want to say coalface, at the face of (laughs) big political paradigm changing research questions and conversations, and also really empowering individuals to access more holistic information to make what seem like increasingly hard food choices, but choices that are increasingly important for our health and for the environment. Bravo! (laughs) Olivia Deshouto, who I quoted earlier, also says that the interconnectedness within a system results both in resistance to change and in the possibility of change occurring from different leverage points and on where the tipping point is located. Small incremental changes may not suffice. We need to take bold action to redirect food systems towards sustainability, and as you've all been saying, we need pretty dramatic transformation. It sounds to me like you are in a great place to do just all of that, and you're you're at the beginning of what looks set to be amazing careers. So all power to you. You you are in the space for the next you know decades ahead. It's really really exciting, and I can't wait to see uh, where HFSA takes flight. Are there any further or final comments that you'd like to share generally or perhaps specifically about HFSA?
2: Something that has become very clear to me in my PhD is that these are really complicated issues and they require a lot of nuance. So we need to come in and make sure that we are you know we're addressing a global food system, but most importantly, I think we need to think about localized context, what's appropriate for what populations, and to really take that localized approach in transformation. so there there isn't going to be one silver bullet fix, and this is the reason why HfSA has started is because it is going to be complicated and we do really need to look at it with a lens of Uh, A case-by-case basis. I guess a final comment from me is that it's important for us not to demonize or take attack. I've had a very um, passionate plea against the food industry, but I think we do need to look at things, looking at how we can leverage certain parts of the system I don't want to use the word optimised because that sits very nicely in the capitalist paradigm, thinking about things with a systems lens but also on an individual case-by-case basis. Sarah, Sarah, any further comments?
3: Were you just going to say that we want to take a systems lens to, you know, individual actions?
1: Yeah, yeah, Considered, considered, nuanced and informed. Yeah, with positive health and environmental outcomes. Okay. So, uh, Cherie, any final comment? One thing that
0: I think is important to remember is that this all feels very cynical when we talk about the food system um, and we talk about some of the problems of the food system. I think it can be easy to get really disheartened. One thing that I want to come across from this podcast, but also from HFSA generally, is that there is so many opportunities for us to impact the system. There is so much hope here um, and we really want to mobilize the community rather than to bring them down and say, this is the way that it is and it will always be this way. Instead, we want people to sort of rise up, disrupt,
1: be noisy and say, we want these changes. Fantastic. So can you tell me how people can learn more about HFSA or get involved with HFSA?
0: Absolutely. So we are on Twitter. HFS Oz. We also have a website. Um, it's hfsaustralia.org. Um, and you can contact us there.
1: And finally, uh, any particular call outs for particular skill sets or groups or individuals you'd like to especially get involved?
3: More input from the agricultural sector, I guess. It's an unknown area for me and, um, and, and very important. So, and often there's in public health, we think, or in, in environmental sustainability, we think agriculture is like maybe the enemy in some ways, and I'd love to see where opinions align and how we can work from there. Yeah, we, we have very little communication with the agricultural sector. We don't come across them at all in what we're doing. So
1: that's really fascinating. I'd love to speak with you about that further outside of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Another
3: thing I wanted to add earlier is just like, I think I would really love to get more public support in general from the from the community for Uh, I think one of the biggest levers we have is regulating industry and regulating the power of industry. And I don't, I'd really love to get more public support for that and get away from this idea of regulation, meaning regulating your individual freedoms, I guess, or, you know, taking away my junk food or, I don't know, I'd love to get that message across somehow and change views about what regulation means. Our, our food environment is already controlled by corporations. It's just the, the environment we've always lived in, so we don't see it as being unusual. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think people often accuse the government of being a nanny state if there is any regulation. And I think to Sarah's point, you know, if it's not the government governing your food choices that doesn't mean that you're having free choices and you know the the idea of a free market is is quite the illusion in the current system
1: sheree kate and sarah thanks very very much for speaking with me i've I've really enjoyed our conversation and i'm i'm looking forward to meeting with you sometime on the other side of lockdown
2: thanks have a great day thank you thank you so much for having us it was such a pleasure
1: thanks anthea thank
2: you
1: thanks for listening I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.